his teaching uh, classes. We're going to be teaching that class for the next several weeks, and he has another commitment after that to teach yet another Sunday school uh, class. So he's not here to make the introduction. So he's lucky for me, the introduction is about a guy who doesn't need any introduction, at least for most of us. But there are some people in the room who are fairly new to the class. And so we'll spend a minute or two talking about Tom Knight. Now, there are a number of people in the class uh, who, over, who have been participants for years, and over years uh, have made significant contributions, not just to the class, but to the church. You, know, you say this person is a senior member of the church, or a... a that means he's old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, he's definitely one of the guys that makes things happen around here. Uh, he is the driving force in the homestretch ministry that our class supports is the largest uh, mission support that we do. And uh, he has his hands into a lot of different things here in the church. And it turns out he's a very talented guy beyond that as well. I mean, he's been into woodwork and all sorts of things. He has many, many interests. And... Uh, Large among his interests are his, his, his passion for continually learning more about the faith and passing that knowledge on to the rest of us. And so he's one of the people we call on from time to time to deliver our lessons. And this is the first of three lessons of the two, two uh, that Tom's going to deliver. And we're here to welcome Tom Knight. Thank you very much. William Barclay 
uh, describes all of man's religion is a search for communications with God, a search for an access to God. And all of that comes together in the book of, of Hebrews. Um, you can let me roll the chart. Lesson learned from Jim McCormick. That's the first thing he does. Roll the chart. Okay, I'm going to try to do this again. Okay, here sits man. Here sits God. This blank in here represents the gap between God and man. And if any of you have been associated with the Billy Graham crusade, you'll remember that he starts with that diagram. And all of Billy Graham's ministry has to do with bridging that gap, the access between God and man. And that comes together in Hebrews, fortunately for us. It's a very exciting book. It's tacked in way at the end of um, the, uh, the New Testament. Um, Barclay describes it as the mystery book of the New Testament. And it is indeed the mystery book because nobody knows who wrote it. Nobody knows to whom it was written. We've got some ideas about the time that it was written because of the events that were mentioned and described in the letter itself. But it's the mystery book of the New Testament because we know so little about it. It also includes a description of one of the most mysterious characters in the entire Bible. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. That's when it gets exciting. This is a very interesting book because it brings together so much of the transition between the Hebrew people, Old Testament um, covenant, and the new Christian church that was being established um, soon after the time of Jesus. Um, we think that Hebrews was written around 70 A.D., and that would mean that the letters, most of the letters of Paul, uh, the first three Gospels, um, would have been written, and the book of Acts, would have been written prior to the book of Hebrews. So the early church had these documents, but they probably were not widely, widely circulated. Um, uh, you can imagine that when the early Gospels were written, um, all of the transcription had to be done by hand, and to get hand copies um, throughout the uh, uh, Mediterranean area where the Christian church started uh, would have been difficult to all of the, the Hebrew communities that were being converted to Christianity. Of course, a lot of Gentiles were coming into the Christian church as well, but the Hebrew uh, book talks more about the Hebrews and the transition between the Old Testament thinking of the Hebrew culture and tradition and the new Christian church. Um, Hebrews was obviously written by a person with a great deal of knowledge, not only of Hebrew, but also of Greek. Uh, Barclay describes it as beautiful Hebrew, excuse me, beautiful Greek language. It presents arguments in the same way um, and a lawyer would build his case. And as you go through this book, he goes through it various, various steps of logic, and we'll go through some of those. Um, but that makes it a, a, a very popular book for Hebrew culture and also Greek culture because he talks about the, the traditions and how they relate 
but they all, he also talks in a very logical way that would appeal to the Greeks as well. Um, uh, as far as we know, it was written to just one congregation, but it could have been written um, to several churches. But this we do know, that the book of Hebrews became a very popular book in the early church. Um, uh, after the first couple of hundred years, it had been um, distributed widely and became very popular, I think, because of the language is so beautiful and because the logic that it presents um, is very uh, easy to follow. It uh, was developed by a person that had to be pretty smart. Barclay thinks that he could have been a, uh, a Hebrew professor, an early Christian convert that had had his community of believers, but he left them for some reason and he's writing a letter back to them. We, we, we don't know that. That's pure speculation. Hebrews, in spite of its popularity, was one of the last books to be accepted in the New Testament canon. And the reason for that is authorship. As I mentioned, nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Um, it wasn't Paul because it's not Paul's style um, at all. Um, it was very likely written by someone other than Paul. But it contains a lot of theology that you say, hey, look, this must have been Paul. But it was not. Um, and you know that the rules of the canonization, in order to be accepted into the New Testament, our Holy Bible, the material had to have been, been written by an apostle or someone that was directly related to an apostle of Jesus. And that qualifies Paul, of course, but since authorship was a question on Hebrews, it was very difficult for anyone to certify that it was written by an apostle of Christ and therefore would not be included in the canon. But then the book was so popular and had so much logic into it, so much of it that makes sense, they finally decided, well, maybe it was written by Paul. And uh, so nobody really believed that, nobody believed it today, but because they decided that maybe it could have been written by Paul, it was finally accepted into our canon in 382 um, eight, uh, AD. Okay. Um, it was obviously written to a Christian church, but it was obviously written to a very Jewish-oriented Christian church because it relates very much to the, to the Hebrew um, traditions. And I'd like to give you a little scenario. Um, let me give you a little word picture of how this book would have been first read by the person that first received um, uh, this letter from somebody that we don't know. Your ancestors would have been from Judea. They, they would have been hauled off, perhaps, by the Babylonian exile. So your ancestors would have resided in Babylon as a part of the exile. Of course, you would have been Jewish in your tradition and your, your heritage. Um, they would have come back to Jerusalem as a part of the people returning to Jerusalem. Perhaps they helped Nehemiah rebuild the walls but your ancestors would have come back to Jerusalem and they would have stayed there for a while until the Maccabean revolutions kept the Romans stirred up and kept the people stirred up and that produced quite a bit of persecution around the time of Jesus and just before that. And that persecution may have forced your family to leave Jerusalem and perhaps you went to, to Italy or some other European area. Um, 
For purposes of illustration, let's just assume that you went to Italy. You might have lived in Rome, but you might have lived outside of Rome. But the community that you lived in would still be Jewish. It would have still been very much of a Jewish community at the time the new church was established. Uh, and you're a part of this new movement. Uh, by 70 AD, uh, quite a few churches had been established, and you were a part of the new Christian community, but still you maintained your association with your heritage. Um, and you've had this powerful teacher that has taught you about the teachings of Paul. Perhaps this teacher might have known Paul. Chances are you have not met Paul, but your teacher had. And he presents these, those teachings in a very special way. Also at this time, you're, you're receiving a lot of persecution. Nero had uh, burned Rome. The Christians had been blamed for that. This produced a lot of persecution. And you would have experienced that persecution in your community. Um, uh, you had to move your church underground. Previously, you had been able to worship in the synagogue or in a public area. But after this persecution, you felt like you had to go underground. You were worshiping in somebody's home in small groups. Your Hebrew friends, on the other hand, were still going to the synagogue. They had not had the persecution, experienced the persecution that the Christians had. And you're beginning to wonder now. This is 70 AD. Um, Christ has been going for a while. The church is just barely getting started. And you remember that your teacher has said that Jesus was coming back. I'm going to correct all of this chaos. But even at 70 AD, you're beginning to wonder, when is that going to happen? How soon? He promised it would happen, but it's already been a long time. When is Jesus coming back? And on top of that, your, your old grandmother it keeps on muttering things like, maybe the Pharisees were right. Uh, what we really needed was a king like David to come in and correct all of this mess. So you get, you're getting pressure to, uh, that causes you to question your Christian beliefs. And you're getting a lot of pressure to go back to the old Hebrew ways, which are still very much prevalent in this community that, that you're in. And then you get this letter from your old Christian leader. And that's when things really begin to happen. The author of Hebrews very boldly states that um, Jesus is the answer. This is the new covenant promise. Uh, in the Old Testament. Now, this is time to make a conversion. But uh, the, the teacher has to do a lot of proving to go through the process that Jesus, to prove that Jesus is superior to the, um, uh, to the Old Covenant, to the Hebrew traditions. Um, so he goes through a step of process. And we'll go through some of these. Uh, we won't get into a whole lot of detail until we get to the end. But um, it's interesting the way the book starts out, uh, the way the, the letter starts out. There's no greeting. There's no dear sir or hi Sally or anything like that. No, uh, no statement that says uh, Paul, a servant of Christ, and apostle, as Paul's letters typically start out. Um, the author of Hebrews just jumps right in. 
And the first thing that he talks about, he goes to a step of proving that Jesus is superior to the prophets. And then he goes to the step of Jesus was superior to the angels. So I'm going to read a little bit of the first part of Hebrews. And uh, then we'll get into a little more detail as we get into it. In, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The God is the radiance of God's, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he was set down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So he talks about prophets, talks about the, uh, the, the role that they have had, then he talks about angels, and that's where we, we, we need to talk a little bit. Um, Historically, the uh, Hebrew people had looked to the prophets to interpret God's word. The prophet brought the word to God and cautioned them, corrected them to change their evil ways, but it was sort of a one-way communication. It was not direct communications like we feel like that we experience with God. Communication two ways. It was not directly between the common man and God, only through the prophet. And then we come to the angels, and this was sort of a, a, something new to me. I wasn't familiar with this at all. But William Barclay says that at the time of Jesus, the Hebrew people had hundreds and hundreds of angels. Some of them had names, but they were looked at as messengers to God, to and from God. They had angels that controlled agriculture, the seas, the seasons, uh, weather, everything under the sun. Uh, some of them had names and some of them didn't. But there was an angel for, for everything. Um, some of them even believed that angels delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses. That was going a little bit far, but that was, some of them felt that way. And so it was very, very important for uh, the writer of Hebrews to prove that Jesus was superior to the angels. And he goes through about three chapters of this proof, and uh, I'm not about to get into all of it, but uh, the bottom line, he says, is what angel do you know who has been invited to sit at the right hand of God? That sort of brings it all together, doesn't it? He also says, uh, what angel do you know that has been told, you are my son, today, today I have become your father? So he talks about angels, he addresses their um, association with the Hebrew community and how important they are, but the bottom line is that he believes and he makes the case for saying that Jesus is superior to the angels. Okay, next step. He talks about Jesus being superior to Moses. Now, to the Hebrew people, Moses was about as close to God as you could get. Uh, Moses, of course, was the one that delivered the Ten Commandments. Moses 
led the Hebrew people out of bondage in Egypt. Moses even talked with God. And uh, so this was, this was the next hurdle that uh, the writer of Hebrews had to address as he's talking about Jesus being superior to Moses. He uses an analogy about a house, and it's, it's interesting. He'll come back to this a little bit later on. But this is, this is what he says about Moses. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, talking about the people he's writing to, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest to whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. <clears throat> Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. And, excuse me. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are his house, for we hold on to our own courage and the hope of what we boast. So, Moses built the house, but Christ is the owner of the house. Moses was a servant. Christ was also a servant, but he was a servant as the Son of God. Okay, next step. We're going through a continuing progression of proving that Christ is superior to the various uh, stages in, um, in, in Hebrew life. And the next step we come to is the priest. He proves that Christ is greater than the priest. And this is where Hebrews gets really interesting. And I'm constantly looking at my talk. We may, my watch, we may run a little bit over. Um, in the Hebrew tradition, and according to the law of Moses as presented in, uh, in Exodus, um, all Hebrew priests had to be descendants of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. They were called Levites. If you were a, a descendant of Aaron, no matter what kind of character you had, you were qualified to be a priest. But all priests had to have that uh, characteristic. They had to be descendants of Aaron. Part of Hebrew tradition going all the way back to the time of Moses. There was only one high priest, and he was elected through a system of casting lots. Now, we would think about casting lots as a form of gambling. The Hebrews looked at it differently. They thought that God controlled the, the, the dice or whatever they did to um, determine who the high priest was. And therefore, the high priest was elected by God. So he was designated as God's messenger, a very high honor. The, the high priest was the only person allowed into the Holy of Holies in the, in, the, in the temple in Jerusalem. And then it occurred only once a year. The high priest was the only one that could approach God because they felt that God, um, uh, God 
resided in the temple in Jerusalem. So that was only one time of the year, and that person's responsibility, the high priest, was to present a sacrifice to the God representing um, all of the sins that man had committed um, in the previous year. Uh, we, the Jews, the temple to present sacrifices for the sins that had occurred to everyone. So this was a very holy day. It was the closest that the Hebrew people got to being with God when the high priest went into the temple. Um, so that was as close as they got to God, and only the high priest was able to do that. But he was a very, very holy person. Um, he went behind the curtain. So in addition to this chasm here that separated man from God in the Hebrew, Hebrew tradition, you can imagine a curtain, if I can draw a curtain, an additional barrier separating God from man. And if you're quick on your feet and sell away, you know that this is the curtain that was removed at the crucifixion. Okay. All right, so we have to prove that Jesus is superior to the high priest. And uh, the writer of Hebrews does this in a very effective way. And it was a real surprise to me. He comes back to the very, very fundamentals of our faith to the time of Abraham. He brings up a high priest by the name of Melchizedek. M-E-L-C-H-I-Z-E-D-E-K. Melchizedek. Um, was the first priest mentioned in our Bible. It's described in Genesis 14. And this priest was actually alive at the time of Abraham's journey. He was a worshiper of God. And Abraham bowed down to him, presented tithes to, tithes to him. Therefore, he was superior to Abraham. It's interesting that he shows up in the 14th chapter of Genesis. We know nothing more about him. He doesn't show up again until uh, the Psalms. And in the Psalms, Psalm 110, if you're familiar with the Psalms, Psalm 110 is one of the prophetic uh, Psalms. It's the one that tells about the coming of Christ. And it refers to Mazel Zedek, Zedek, Melchizedek at that time. <laughs> Hebrews talks again about Melchizedek. I did it that time. <laughs> um, it's interesting that we have got one character, this Melchizedek, uh, that's mentioned in Genesis at the very beginning of our Bible. Disappears, never heard from again, shows up in Psalms in association with the prediction of the coming of Christ. And then he shows up again in the book of Hebrews as the same character, but not mentioned again in our Bible. This fellow, Michelle Zedek, um, doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother, has no birth. He has no end. 
This is the way he is described in the book of Hebrews. Sounds like a God. He shows up at the time of Abraham and again is mentioned at the time of the coming of Christ. Um, I don't know about you, I find this sort of interesting and mysterious, but it's also a very humbling thought to me. Jim McCormick talked about God continuing to reveal himself throughout the Old and New Testament. And maybe this spirit of Majalzadek is the way that he uses to do it. To me, it provides a continuing thread through the Bible. It links the oldest part of the Old Testament through the Psalms, through the period of, of the exile when the Bible Psalms were written, all the way into the New Testament, into the establishment of the new church. It's sort of like this fellow, this priest of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that is referred to in our Bible, in Genesis, as the King of Peace. What did we call Jesus? The Prince of Peace. It's this, this is way out. I need a theologian here to help me. But it's sort of like this is the spirit of Jesus that continued through the time of Abraham, before his historic birth, and then, of course, into the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. It's a continuous story. And I find it pretty thrilling. It's like a confirmation of God having a plan in place from the very beginning of time through the birth of Jesus and through the establishment of the new church and it's very logical to extend it to us today. Um, I don't know whether anybody has pursued that from a theological basis. As many doctorate theses have been written, I am sure somebody has thought about that before me. But uh, it's an interesting story. The author of Hebrews uses that as his proof that Jesus is superior to the priest. And the way he goes about it is, is saying, okay, the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood that you've got in your, you're well established in your community today, was established at the time of Moses. But here's this guy, Mazelzadeh, that was preceded Aaron, preceded Moses, preceded Abraham, and he has established a priesthood that therefore is superior to that of Abraham, I mean to um, Aaron. Aaron's priesthood was in place throughout the Old Testament, but now Melchizedek is back in the form of Jesus, or Jesus is in the form of Melchizedek. The, the method he uses is to describe Jesus as a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So that priesthood is greater than that of Aaron, greater than the Old Testament priest. It's time for a new covenant. And we'll get into that new covenant next week. But I hope that I have shared with you a little bit of my enthusiasm about this thing. It, it just, I, I would not have studied the Hebrews, I would not have known that much about it if I hadn't been prepared for this lesson. But when I got into it, and understood the linkage, especially in, in light of what Jim McCormick was talking about. 
It bridges the gap. It removes this curtain. Jesus does that. It opens the way to a new covenant relationship between man and God. I want to read now, and I'm running over. Last thing I will do is to read part of Hebrews 10. This is a scripture that you'll be familiar with. This is where he sums up his defense of Jesus being superior to the prophets, the angels, Moses, and the priesthood. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, the most high place would be communication with God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, Jesus' body. And since we have a great priest, that is, Jesus Christ, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswerving to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in a habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day coming, which is approaching, the day that he is referring to is the next round of persecution, which they were really concerned about um, happening uh, almost momentarily, and it did. The next round of persecution would have been several, uh, about ten years away, but it was coming, and they knew that it was coming. <coughs> Interesting to me that he should encourage us to not give up meeting together, as we're doing here. As some of us are in the habit of doing, those are the ones that are not here this morning, uh, it's almost like Mike Long must have read this scripture. He's always encouraging us to increase our church membership. Okay, that's the end of today's lesson. Next week we're going to pick up there and talk more about the new covenant and the old covenant and what it means to establish a new covenant and why all of this made it so important. A clear message that a new covenant was being established. Right, let's go to prayer. Dear Lord, we, we praise your holy name. We just thank you for the holy scriptures that enlighten us. We thank you for servants like uh, Jim McCormick and Jeff um, Whitting that have brought your message to us. Help us to love one another. Help us to attend worship regularly. Help us to spur each other on in, faith, in, in works of, of holiness. Thank you for this class. Continue to be with us next week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.